Well, good morning, Weymouth. Good morning. Welcome once again. Thank you for uh, joining us for another week, another chance to worship and fellowship together. As we get started, let's uh, spend a few moments just in uh, just silent prayer in our own hearts, uh, preparing our hearts for worship. So please bow and pray with me. Psalmist writes in Psalm 118, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And gracious Father, Lord, that is our uh, prayer, that is our praise this morning, that your steadfast love endures forever. So as we worship now through the words we sing, through uh, the study of your word together, show us anew your steadfast love and the person and work of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing with us.
seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him.
thanks again for uh, joining us for worship this week. My name is uh, Chris. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'd be happy to, to talk with you after the service. We're glad you're, you're here or joining in online. Uh, just a, a few announcements for us this morning as we continue on in our worship. Uh, we have another Weymouth Family Night this Wednesday. We've started these last week. These are uh, midweek gatherings every Wednesday from 6.30 to 8. Uh, we have a time for students, Weymouth, ki- or Weymouth students. We have Weymouth kids. Uh, we have a nursery. We have a Parent Connect, which has been a good time with parents, and then a midweek prayer group. So if you're interested in that, if you have kids, if you have students, if you'd like to come and pray with other people or come and uh, engage and encourage other parents, um, you'd be welcome to, to join us this Wednesday at 630. Uh, also next Sunday, a week from today, we are having, which is what we are calling a Weymouth Q&A, and, and this is a time we're going to gather together in the evening next Sunday, the 17th, uh, from 6.30 to 8.30. Uh, there'll be some light refreshments provided, and it'll just be a time for anyone to come with questions about God, about theology, about uh, the church, about uh, culture, about just different, different things that you might wonder about, you might be struggling with. Uh, it's a time where uh, people who may, might be skeptical about biblical things or might be struggling with different uh, thoughts or, or questions or ideas, it's, it would all be welcome to come and, and ask questions and we'll, we'll make at least an attempt at, at answering some questions or having some, some charitable discussions around uh, whatever is, is brought. Uh, if you'd like to uh, submit a question for that, you can go to our website, waymouthchurch.com. You can click on the events tab. It can take you to the page for the Q&A where you can submit questions. We made a, a Google Doc for that. And uh, our plan for that is to spend the first half uh, talking through questions that are submitted ahead of time. And then the second half of the night will be a time to kind of address questions from people who are there that night. So uh, it's a great chance to invite a non-Christian friend, a non-Christian neighbor, somebody who might be skeptical or struggling or unsure about faith or the Bible. It's a great opportunity to come and invite them in and uh, have some charitable discussions together. So that's uh, this, a week from today, the, the 17th, from 6.30 to 8.30. And then uh, the following Sunday, September 24th, we are having a new member class uh, at Sunday uh, following the service. So if, you've, if you're newer to our, our life here at Weymouth or you've been coming around for a while but haven't yet taken that step of membership, you can come to that class on the 24th and learn more about uh, what it means to be a member, how we uh, approach membership here at Weymouth. Um, it's a great chance to get to know some other people who are newer or, or learn more about the church. So that'll be happening Sunday, September 24th. And you can keep an eye on all these things at our website, waymouthchurch.com. You can check out the bulletin. You can come talk to me afterwards with any questions that you might have. Uh, we'd love to discuss these things with you. So in light of all that, we'll move to a time of prayer together this morning. And we'll uh, continue our pattern of praying for a local, uh, like-minded church here in Medina County. And then also for a global church. So this morning we're going to be praying for uh, Medina Community Church, a church that Weymouth planted a couple decades ago, I, I guess. Uh, so we'll be praying for them. And then, and then also, as far as the global church, we'll be praying for the country of Syria, the church in Syria, which is uh, number 12 on the world watch list. Um, so please bow and pray with me. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the, the chance we've already had this morning to behold you, to praise you, to uh, proclaim how mighty you are to save Lord, so continue this morning to, to soften our hearts, to make us receptive to the, the news of how you have saved us, how you have worked to save us in Christ. Of, uh, help us to behold your glory and your grace as we uh, read your word, as we worship and pray together. Lord, remove whatever distractions, whatever 
things might inhibit us, might dull us to uh, your work in our hearts this morning. Lord, forgive us for uh, all of the different ways we've chased other idols this week, all the ways that we have turned our backs on you or are turned to other things to find life and salvation. Lord, help us to behold you this morning in your word and community with one another. And we thank you for the fellowship that we can share for these Wednesday nights and the chance to gather together and the chance over the next couple Sundays to ask questions and have uh, uh, good conversations and to uh, think about membership and think about what it means to, to be a part of uh, a church family. We thank you that uh, we don't have to walk through life alone, that in Christ we can have brothers and sisters. We are brought into a new family, a new kingdom, uh, a new community. So help us to live this life as a community together with humility, with joy, dealing with our own sin, turning away from temptation, pointing one another back to your word, to your glory. Lord, so help us this morning and help other churches both locally and all over the world. We lift up Medina Community Church to you as they worship this morning. We lift up their pastor Doug and, and their elders and leaders and interns and staff. Yeah, go before them, help them to glorify you with one voice to serve you in this community, that more people might come to know Christ. And we ask for your, your grace and your peace to be on the church in Syria as they face violence and, and persecution, especially in the northwest and the northeast, and um, as, as places where uh, Christian leaders are, are arrested and beaten and killed and where Christians are, are, are persecuted powerfully for their faith, Lord. Just strengthen them in, in a way that makes no sense to the world. Lord, grow them, use uh, centers of hope, use churches, use different places, different ministries in that country to bring more people to saving faith in Christ. Lord, help the church there to, to be willing to, to lay down their lives for you and service one another, that more people might come to know you. And help us here to do the same. Help us to follow their example with joy, with humility, to embrace the cost of following Christ, knowing uh, that in him we have a Savior who's pay the ultimate cost for us to bring us a life and a eternal destiny and a hope uh, that is unshakable by suffering or by hardship or by persecution. So help the, the church in Syria to grow in their hope in Christ and help us to do the same as we worship and serve you together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if there are any kids, uh, kids now, if you want to come on up to the front, we'll, we'll spend our time in the catechism together. Uh, before he's going off to, to Weymouth Kids, to Children's Church. So come on up, have a seat up here on the steps. Ooh, oh, okay. We're going to look at Oh, no. <laughs> oh, 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 gotcha. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Did you want me to sit on your lap this morning? Thanks, man. Wow, that was really strong. You want to do one? Okay. You guys are strong. Please don't do it hard. That was very hard. Uh, well, good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? You enjoying being back at school? Yeah. Yeah, is that fun? You are? That's crazy. I was in kindergarten a very long time ago. So there you go. That's awesome. Five? Nice. Yeah, I was five when I was in Why did I think you were like 15? Was I wrong? Yeah, you're so mature. Well, you guys, we're going to look at our next section of the Lord's Prayer together this morning. We've been going through this in our catechism, the New City Catechism, and uh, we've been looking through this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which he gives us in Matthew 6, which, uh, in which God, he, in which Jesus, he instructs us how to pray to God as our Father. So we've been going through it uh, line by line. 
last week we talked about forgiveness, for asking you know, God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then this morning we're going to uh, look at the, the last line here, which is, and lead us not into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. So temptation is, is a big word. It's kind of a churchy, Christian-y word, right, when we talk about temptation. Uh, so let me ask you guys this. How many of you guys at your house have, like, a snack drawer or a candy drawer or a have, cookie jar? We don't have a cookie jar or a candy jar. We don't have those. You we have, have zero of those. You have zero of those? <laughs> <laughs> Just calling your, your parents out, putting put them on blast publicly here, right? Yes? Yeah? I have a candy drawer. You have a candy drawer? Do you ever, be honest, do you ever try and sneak we candy in your candy, candy drawer? Yeah. yeah. You always ask, really? Always 100% of the time? Yeah, and I always <laughs> ask for candy at the parade, but mom says no! Yeah. And your mom says no. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Are you ever tempted to get candy anyways? Yeah. Yeah, right? So, you know, at my house, at my house, my, we have, uh, we have a, a pantry, and my, my wife sometimes put we snacks and goodies in there. You do? Yeah. No way. And I have a bit of a problem, you guys, which is, and I've talked about this publicly before, but I really like uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. And occasionally my wife or somebody will get us Reese's and my wife will put them in our pantry or she'll put them in the, the drawer in our fridge or something. And uh, she has to hide them. My wife has to hide the candy, the Reese's from me, because she knows if I know where they are, then I'll eat the whole pack in like 20 minutes, right? Like they'll just be gone in like a day. So she hides it in the back of the fridge or she hides it in the back of the pantry um, because she knows that if it's there, then I'll be tempted to just eat all of the candy. You can't eat all of the candy. Oh, I, believe me, I can. Uh, right? But when we talk about temptation, what we were talking about is that sometimes we have a desire or a pull to, to take something or get something or do something that's actually not good for us, right? It's, if I eat a bunch of Reese's and I have a bellyache or I get cavities or it's, just, it's not good for me ultimately, right? a cavity. No way, that's not good. <laughs> he has one. What a good brother, laughing at your sibling's pain. Um, that's awesome, right? So temptation is that, that part of our hearts, because we're sinners, because we uh, naturally are, desire things that aren't good for us, naturally desire things that God doesn't want for us, that actually hurt us. And we, and we do that, you know, in silly ways with candy, but we also do that in, in big and in, in dangerous ways spiritually. We desire... To, to do things that God has told us not to do or to, to break his commands or to pursue things because we're selfish and we think, oh, this might make me feel good or, oh, this might make me happy even though God has told us in his word, hey, don't do that. Stay away from that. That's not good for you. And so temptation is that thing in our hearts that pulls us, that leads us to desire something that we shouldn't desire, something that's not good for us. And so we need God's help because as sinners, all of us struggle with that temptation, with struggle with a desire for the things that are evil. Yep. And so part of praying to God in this Lord's Prayer is asking him, God, lead us not into temptation. Not that God is the one who leads us into temptation, but it's saying, God, lead us out of temptation. Lead us away from that desire for things that are evil, for things that could hurt us. Yeah, what's up? Um, I have a joke for you. Oh, go for it. Knock, knock. Who's there? Door. Door? Door who? I forgot how jokes work. Fix the doorbell, will ya? <laughs> That's a good one. Fix the doorbell, right? So, but when we, when, we, when we say lead us not to temptation, what we need to remember, too, is that God, he knows what it's like to be tempted. Because Jesus, Jesus is the son of God who took on flesh, who lived as a human, experienced all the temptations we experience. But the book of Hebrews tells us that even though he was tempted in every way, he never sinned. 
He never gave in to temptation. And then he went to the cross and paid the price for all the ways we fail, all the evil that we've done when we give in to temptation. Right? And so if you trust Jesus, if we look to Jesus, then we can pray this prayer in Christ for God to help us when we face temptation, to deliver us from evil. <laughs> and he'll help us. Does that make sense? Yeah? So think about that the next time you're tempted to steal candy from a parade or open up a candy drawer. Or I'll try and remember that next time my wife gets Reese's and I try not to eat them all in one sitting. Right? Well, let's pray and let's do this now since this is the, the end of our time in the Lord's Prayer. Hello. I thought let's, let's pray. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, both kids and adults. Let's join in. Let's all say it together here uh, to wrap up this, this time in the, in the Catechism. So let's say this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I add a little part at the end that you guys didn't see that coming. Yeah, right? I nice. see, yeah, I think I see Mr. Wayne. All right, well, let's go. So you guys are going to go to Children's Church now. You can line up behind Mr. and Mrs. Pixon. And then the rest of us uh, big kids will stand and oh, sing another song together. Always a thousand percent, right? Well, let's stand and, and sing another song together. All right, big kids. <laughs> so we got another song, another new song for everyone. This one is from City of Light. Um, been a big fan of City of Light recently. They've been releasing a lot of good music. This one's not brand new. It's a little older from them, but um, still just as good. And uh, it's a really good story of um, kind of Jesus's life. And particularly as, as we get closer to his death and resurrection um, as we're going through Mark. Um, so this is Jerusalem. I'm going to have Eleanor sing the first verse for us. You can join in as you, as you um, feel comfortable, and then we're going to start it all over and sing the whole thing through.
Father God, we, we come here to praise your name. We come here to worship you, Lord. Um, we pray that we would quiet our own hearts and listen to what you have to teach us from your word, Lord. Pray that we wouldn't take that lightly this morning, that um, this is your word, um, and you are here with us now, Lord. We, um, we just continue to worship you here now um, through Pastor Chris and what he has to teach us. Lord, I pray that you would speak through him and to us. Lord, I pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, book of Mark chapter 14. Uh, that, I thought that Jerusalem song was appropriate as we're uh, here at the end of Mark's gospel in the section in which Jesus is, has been in Jerusalem. He's been teaching and ministering and uh, dealing with challenges from the religious leaders. And, um, and last time, two weeks ago when we were in the book of Mark, we we really fully entered into uh, what we call the, the passion of Christ, his, his journey to the cross. Uh, last time we were in Mark, we looked at the, the celebration of Passover where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And then uh, we'll pick up the narrative here in Mark 14, uh, starting in verse 26, and we'll go through uh, verse 52. And I wanna, I wanna read it all for us here just, to, just so we get a scope of, of what's happening here because uh, starting this week and over the next several weeks as we finish out Mark's gospel, we are entering into a, a particularly uh, a powerful and, and painful moment in the life of Christ and in the life of the church here as we think about the crucifixion, as we think about uh, the resurrection. And so turn with me to Mark 14 and follow along as I read, starting in uh, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, with you I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. 
seize him and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Faithful Father, as we come now to this account of, of, of Jesus in the garden, of his arrest, his abandonment, Lord, help us to see more clearly your Son, our Savior. Help us now by your Spirit, we pray, with your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Now, when I was a freshman in college at Cedarville, uh, like a lot of freshmen, I had an 8 a.m. biology class. An 8 a.m. biology class, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And there was a couple problems, but the biggest problem was that at that same time, I was also working in the school cafeteria, and I had the bright idea that it'd be good to take the morning shift, the, the 5.30 to 7.30 a.m. shift. I also thought it would be a really smart idea as a new excited freshman to stay up with the guys in the dorms till around 1 or 2 every night, right? So I'm staying up till 1 or 2. I'm getting up at 5 to go work in the cafeteria every morning. So you can imagine what happened as I uh, went to that 8 a.m. biology class, right? You can imagine. I, I fell asleep. I fell asleep, like, a lot. Um, I fell asleep a lot. I did, not, uh, I did not do well. I slept through one completely slept through one lab, and that was not good. There was only like three of them. But um, yeah, I did not do well in the class, which was, which was fun news for my dad, who literally went to Stanford as a biology major, right? So I, I slept, I was sleepy, I slumbered, and I, I didn't do well. I got a bad grade. Um, so all you young people anticipating college out there, let that be a warning. Get your sleep, right? Don't take a job in the morning service in the cafeteria. Uh, don't sleep through class. Yeah, right, do as I say, not as I do. Um, but because, you know, if I'm honest, you know, sleepiness is not just a problem that I struggle with as a freshman in college taking 8 a.m. biology. If I'm really honest with myself, sleepiness is something that is not just even a problem for me uh, physically. If, when I'm really honest, I, I have to admit that uh, I struggle not just with, with physical sleepiness, but also with spiritual sleepiness. Uh, I can, uh, at times in my life, I, I can uh, be dulled or distracted spiritually. I can be uh, unaware, unconscious of the temptations and the challenges and the opportunities around me. And I think if you're honest with yourself, however you did in biology in college or whatever, if you're really honest with yourself, I think you can admit the same thing, that we all struggle at times with spiritual sleepiness, with spiritual slumber that there are times in all of our lives when we are spiritually dulled, we are spiritually distracted by pride or temptation or suffering or fear. And so we lose sight, we become unaware, we become unconscious of what God is up to. We feel distant from Him. We forget the true mission and work of Christ. And when we come to this text this morning here in Mark 14, one of the things we see 
is that the disciples also struggled with spiritual slumber. That the disciples too, they're distracted by pride and fear by their own religious expectations to the point where they're unaware, they're unconscious of the the radical, uh, world-shaking things taking place at this point in Christ's life. You see, a crisis is coming here for the disciples. Jesus, he's about to be arrested and killed. Our text this morning, it opens with the prediction from Jesus that he's going to be struck and the disciples and the sheep are going to be scattered. The disciples are going to abandon him. He predicts this in the beginning and then the section, it concludes with the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction as he's arrested, as he's abandoned by the disciples. But in between these two scenes in the middle, we have a, a central section in which Jesus desperately prays to his father in the garden. And as he is praying in the garden, Jesus goes and he discovers that his closest disciples are sleeping. And so he goes to them in the garden. He warns them to wake up. And so in the center of this passage, we have a warning from Jesus to the disciples, a warning from us today to shake off spiritual slumber. Jesus warns his disciples against this because he knows that temptation and hardship are coming, the likes of which they uh, never could have imagined. But he also knows that a new life, a new reality, a new hope is coming that is far greater than anything they could have hoped for. And so his warning for the disciples is a a warning for us too to shake off spiritual slumber, to wake up to what God has done in Christ, to join in what he's doing in the world. This text here, it's like an alarm clock for us this morning. It calls us to wake up, to shake off spiritual slumber by looking to Christ who was completely faithful even as he was completely abandoned. That's the call of this text, our theme for us this morning to shake off spiritual slumber by looking to Christ who was completely faithful even as he was completely abandoned. And this call, it it, it unfolds for us in the text through through three scenes of contrast, three scenes of contrast between Jesus and his disciples. First, we have a scene of of prediction where uh, Christ's prediction is contrasted with the protests of his disciples. Then we have a scene in which the submission of Christ is contrasted with the slumber of his disciples. And finally, we have a scene where the arrest of Christ is contrasted with the abandonment of his disciples. So prediction and protest, submission and slumber, arrest and abandonment. So first we have a scene of prediction and protest there in verses 26 to 31. Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they conclude the Passover meal by singing a hymn together. And traditionally, this would have been uh, what were called the Hallel Psalms. These are Psalms 113 to Psalms 118 in the Old Testament, which were uh, typically sung by the people of Israel during times of celebration. These Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, that would have been sung throughout the Passover meal with Psalm 118 serving as the, the climax, the conclusion being sung at the end of the meal. And so it's very likely that in verse 26 here, the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sing is actually Psalm 118. As William Lane put it, uh, when Jesus rose to go to Gethsemane, Psalm 118 was on his lips. 
That's important because what's happening here in the text in Mark and just this little note that they sing a hymn, Mark is showing us that before we get into the tragic scenes to come, he's pointing us to the words of Psalm 118, a psalm which declares God's steadfast love, the psalm he opened the service with. Psalm 118, it declares God's steadfast love, his saving action for his people. These were the words that were on Jesus' lips as he goes out to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is important because it means that uh, as we go through the narrative here, Jesus would have just sung these words in Psalm 118, 5 to 7, which says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. This is what Jesus and his disciples sang, and it's important to see that because from now until the end of chapter 15, we are going to see Jesus in distress. Jesus is going to be in distress. He's going to be arrested and abandoned and beaten and crucified. And as Jesus enters this time of sorrow, he does so declaring the steadfast love of God the Father, who is going to bring ultimate triumph over his enemies out of Jesus' distress and suffering. This is what God is doing here. This is the tone Mark sets for us here with Psalm 118. And so Jesus and his disciples, they go to the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus tells them, he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And here in this prediction, Jesus, he's drawing again from the Old Testament. He's directly quoting, he's quoting the words of Zechariah 13.7. He's quoting the prophet Zechariah in chapter 13. Now, Zechariah, he's one of the, the minor prophets. He's, as you go to the end of the Old Testament, you have all those little short books with all, like, with guys with weird names, right? Like Zechariah, Obadiah, Malachi, you know, great baby names for here in 2023, right? Zechariah, he's one of these minor prophets, and his role was to go and, and preach to Israel, to proclaim God's word to the Israelites. And in particular, throughout the book, Zechariah, he's, he's uh, preaching God's judgment against his enemies, God's judgment against his people for their sins. But Zechariah also goes on to promise that God is going to ultimately restore and rescue his people. And in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7 in particular, the prophet Zechariah, he declares that God is going to strike down the shepherd, the leader of his people. And when he does so, the sheep, the people of Israel, will be scattered. But Zechariah also promises that through this judgment, the striking of the shepherd, God is going to purify, he's going to refine a remnant, a core, a people for himself. Through this judgment, he's going to create a people for himself who will be his people, who will call on his name, and he will answer them. And so Zechariah 13, it's a promise that God is going to strike down the shepherd of his people in judgment. But by doing so, he's going to purify and create a new people for himself. And by quoting this verse from Zechariah, Jesus is identifying himself as this shepherd, as this leader of God's people who's going to be struck down to receive this judgment. And when he does so, when Jesus is struck down, the disciples are going to be scattered. They're going to abandon him. They're going to go through a time of suffering. But this suffering, this judgment, this striking down of the shepherd, it's actually going to lead to a purification, a restoration by God 
of a people for himself. It's something that must be done according to the saving plans and purposes of God. And Jesus tells his disciples exactly how this is going to happen, how this is going to take place. In verse 28, he says to them, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You see, Jesus, he tells the disciples that he's going to be struck down, but he also tells them that he's going to be raised up. He's going to rise again, and after he's raised to new life, he's going to gather together his scattered disciples in Galilee in the place where his ministry began, in the place where he first called them to be his followers. You see, the distress of Christ is going to give way to the ultimate triumph of Christ, the ultimate salvation of God, the creation of a new people for God. Jesus here, he's, going, he's the perfect shepherd who's going to fulfill both Psalm 118 and also Zechariah 13. Jesus promises distress, but he also promises uh, triumph. He promises death, but he also promises resurrection and restoration. But the disciples, they don't get it. They don't get it. They completely miss Jesus' promise about rising again, about bringing triumph. Instead, they only focus in on his suffering. Peter, he protests Jesus' prediction about the disciples falling away. He says to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And in response to this, Jesus tells Peter, he says, Peter, before this night is very up, before the, the, the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Now, when we see that number three in Scripture, it, it, should, it should, you know, pop up like, like a hyperlink when you're reading an article online, right? It's something that should get our attention because we see throughout the Bible when things are repeated three times or when something is re- referred to three times, usually that, that represents this idea of completion, this idea of fullness. When things are repeated three times in Scripture, it's meant to show us how something is completely or fully true, you see, Peter, in all his boldness and all his pride and all his devotion, he, he comes to Jesus and he, he asserts, he promises that he's going to be completely devoted to Christ, even if everybody else falls away. But Jesus responds by telling him, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times. You're actually going to completely and fully deny me. But Peter, he protests again, he emphatically declares that he would rather die with Jesus before he deserts or denies Jesus. And the other disciples, they line up and they say the same thing. See, the disciples, they're not hearing the message of Jesus' prediction that his triumph is going to come through his distress. They don't take hold of this promise. Instead, they pridefully assert their own uh, devotion, their own strength, their own loyalty to Jesus. And so we want to ask the question, why do they do this? How could they so clearly miss the promise of Christ? Well, it's because they're sleepy spiritually, because they are dulled by their own pride, their own cultural and religious expectations. They're trusting in the strength of their own devotion, their own actions, their own loyalty, to the point where they actually completely miss Jesus' true promise. They completely miss his true mission. And if we're not careful we too can struggle with the same kind of spiritual sleepiness and dullness. We too can be dulled and distracted by our own pride, trusting and putting our confidence in our own acts of devotion, trusting in our own religious or moral track record to the point where we actually miss the true triumph, the true mission, the true 
hope that comes from trusting not in what we do, but in what Christ has done for us. And so Mark, he he takes us into the garden. He takes us into the garden where the full weight of Jesus' distress is revealed. And where his disciples, they receive a warning to wake up. To the garden where we too receive a warning. Where we too are called to shake off spiritual slumber. By looking to the perfect, faithful submission of Christ. So that's our next scene this morning. First, a prediction and protest. Secondly, we have a scene of submission and slumber here in verses 32 to 42 in the heart of the passage. Because Jesus and his disciples, they go, they go out to this mountain, to the Mount of Olives, and there at the foot of the mountain is a garden called Gethsemane. And that word Gethsemane, it just means olive press. It means olive press. This would have been a garden or a vineyard where, where olives and grapes were pressed down in, in winemaking. There's an olive press, and this this name is appropriate, it's fitting. Because in this garden, the weight of Jesus' distress and suffering is going to be pressed down upon him. It's going to lead him to cry out to his father in desperation. Jesus comes to the garden, and he tells the rest of the disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John, his, his inner ring, the guys who have been the most boisterous, the most assertive, that they could stand with Jesus, that they could drink the cup that he's going to drink. He takes them with him into the garden. And there they see Jesus, the Son of God, become greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus is honest with them. He says to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus, he commands them as he goes to pray, he commands them to watch, to stay alert, to stay awake as he prays. And then, like the author of Psalm 118, Jesus, he cries out to his Father. He cries out to God the Father in his distress. He cries out and he he says to him, he falls on the ground and prays to his Father that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Mark gives us the words of Jesus' prayer. Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Praise to his father. He calls him Abba. And when Jesus prays to God and calls him Abba here, he's using a term, he's using a word uh, that was a common title, a common term in households of that day. This is how children would have referred to their, their fathers in their own household. This was a family term. It was a familial term. It was not the kind of title or the kind of term that Israelites would have ever used to pray to God. They never would have used such a casual, such an intimate term uh, to pray to God. But here in the garden, in the midst of his sorrow, Jesus, the Son of God, he reveals the the intimacy he shares with the Father, the, the unity he shares with God by calling him Abba. He reveals his oneness with God and he cries out desperately for his Father who can do all things to let this cup pass from him. To let this cup pass from him. When Jesus when he talks about this cup here, he's cluing us into the, the ultimate reason for his sorrow, for his distress unto death. Because throughout the Old Testament, this idea of a cup, of the cup of God, the cup of the Lord, it's used as an illustration, as a picture for God's wrath, for his just judgment of sin and rebellion. 
throughout Scripture, we hear the prophets, we hear other places where uh, God's judgment is referred to. It's pictured as a cup of wrath being poured out on those who do evil in his sight. You see, Jesus in the garden, he's filled with distress. He's filled with deadly sorrow, not just because he knows he's going to be arrested, not just because he knows he's going to have to deal with the physical suffering of crucifixion. He's filled with sorrow because he knows that the hour, the time has come for him to drink the cup of God's wrath, for the cup of God's just judgment for sin to be poured out on him and the Son of God who is perfectly without sin. Jesus is the the Son of God who is so close to the Father that he can call him Abba. And yet he knows that he's going to be forsaken by his Father in judgment and in wrath. And in his humanity, in his humanity, Jesus, he, he staggers at this prospect. He's overwhelmed by this cup, by this judgment. He's filled with unimaginable sorrow and distress, knowing what is coming. He cries out for his father to do the impossible, to let this cup pass from him. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 36. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus, as he's pressed down by the weight of this cup, by the weight of this coming judgment of the cross, even in the midst of this deadly sorrow, Jesus, he perfectly submits to his Father's will, to his Father's plan of salvation. See, Christ, he's come. The whole reason he's taken on flesh, he's become fully human, is to obey the plan of his Father to come and rescue sinners. He's come purposefully, willingly to be struck down in order to create a new people for himself. And Jesus knows there's no other way for sinners to be saved. There's no other way for rebels to be rescued than for him to go to the cross, to take our place, to drink the cup that we deserve, the cup of God's judgment for our sins, for our failure, for our rebellion, for our pride, our idolatry. It's the only way that sinners can be saved and rescued. So Jesus knows he must go and drink this cup. And so even in the face of that staggering suffering, He submits. He submits to his Father's plan. He submits to his Father's will. He repeats this prayer three times. He's completely faithful here, fully faithful to his Father's will, fully and completely submitting to his Father, even as it leads him into ultimate suffering. But then as we see Jesus repeat this prayer in the text, a shift begins to take place from the submission of Christ to the slumber of the disciples. Because Mark tells us that after each of these three times that Jesus prays, he returns to the disciples, to Peter, James, and John, and he finds them sleeping. He finds them sleeping. We see this contrast between the anguish, the sorrow of Jesus, and the the, the unconsciousness, the, the slumber of the disciples. And the first time he finds them sleeping, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This happens two more times. Each time Jesus prays, he comes back and he finds them sleeping. They couldn't stay awake. They couldn't watch. They couldn't stay alert. They miss the weight 
of Jesus' distress and sorrow, of his prayer. And Jesus or the disciples slumber here. It's meant to highlight for us how alone Jesus is in this moment, how alone he is in his suffering. The disciples have already begun to abandon him. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the disciples' failure, do you see how compassionate Jesus is being here? Do you see his compassion? You see, I've, I've read this scene, and, and often when I've read this scene, I've always, I've always taken it to be Jesus comes and he's, he's frustrated with the disciples. He's frustrated with how his friends have fallen asleep in his time of need, how they're not there for him. But as I was studying it this week, one commentator pointed out that when Jesus comes to his disciples, he makes no mention of how they have hurt him. His concern is completely for them. The emphasis is completely on, on the danger they face, not the hurt that Christ is facing. He comes to them and he, he calls them to watch and pray. He sees the danger in their slumber because he knows uh, that temptation is coming that the, the crisis of the cross is going to devastate the disciples. It's going to lead them into pain and persecution. He knows the temptation, the despair that are going to come with this crisis. And so in the midst of his own distress, Jesus, even as he's filled with sorrow, he compassionately comes out to them. He seeks out his disciples three times to warn them, to call them to stay awake. And this compassionate warning at the center of the text, it's, it's so important because uh, in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, fear and suffering, they can, they can dull our senses spiritually. Sorrow and distress, they can make us feel like we're far from God. They can numb us to his presence. They can make us vulnerable to temptation, to despair. Things can dull us and lead us into slumber. And Mark's original readers, the original readers of the Gospel of Mark, they would have been intimately familiar with this because they were faced daily with the distress and the sorrow of persecution, of the risk to their own lives. And you might be here this morning too, struggling in the midst of sorrow and distress and pain. You too might feel like you're sleepwalking spiritually. You too might feel like you're led along by your pain and your fear. You might feel like you're dulled by sin and temptation. But here is Christ in the garden, perfectly, completely submitting to his Father in the midst of sorrow, compassionately going out to the slumbering disciples in the midst of his own anguish. You see, this text tells us that Christ is a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to experience distress and sorrow. He knows this intimately at a level none of us ever will. And so he can deal tenderly, he can deal compassionately with those who are suffering, with those who are slumbering. He can call out to us, he can wake us up. He can lead us to see the, the sorrow that he has submitted to in our place in order to one day wipe every tear from our eyes. Because you see, Jesus, he came not just to, to fully identify with us in our sorrow. He came to bear our ultimate sorrow, the ultimate sorrow of the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And so we can look to Christ and we can say the words of the hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name 
for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. A Savior who knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to feel abandonment, who knows what it is to feel distress, and who did that for us, who took that on for us to free us from our ultimate sorrow, from our ultimate distress. This is the submission that he embraces, the faithfulness that he displays in the garden in his prayer. Because in the midst of deadly sorrow, Christ remains completely faithful. He submits to his Father's will as his hour arrives. He says, it is enough. The time has come. His prayer is answered with the arrival of his betrayer as he is arrested and abandoned. And so we come to the final scene here, a scene of arrest and abandonment. Because while Jesus is still speaking, Judas arrives. Judas, one of the twelve who had previously made arrangements to betray Jesus, he arrives with a mob, with a crowd from the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. And they've come with clubs, they've come with weapons uh, to arrest Jesus. And Judas, he, he identifies Jesus with a kiss and the mob seizes, his, seizes him. And one of his disciples, the Gospel of John, tells us, Peter, he, he tries to put up a fight. But then Jesus says to all of them, he says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. You know, it's amazing to me as, as I read this, just how uh, Jesus doesn't play into the drama of the scene at all. Right? If this was an action movie, if this was a TV show, you'd expect Jesus and his disciples to put up a fight. This would be the big season finale, climax, right? explosions and fights going off everywhere. Jesus doesn't buy into that. He doesn't get caught up in the drama. He doesn't get caught up in the fear. He doesn't get caught up in the anger and the violence that we see in Peter. No, he completely authoritatively rises above it. None of this catches him by surprise. None of this is out of his control. None of it overwhelms him. Because he's already submitted in the garden. He's already entrusted himself to his Father's will. He's already cried out to the Lord in his distress. And he's completely faithful to follow his Father's plan. And so he says, hey guys, what are you doing here? I've been teaching with you in the temple for weeks. Why do you come at me in secret at night with clubs and weapons as if I'm some robber? He says, I'm here, I've been ready. This is why I've come. So let's go. Let the scripture be fulfilled. See, Jesus, he is perfectly submitting to his Father's plan, perfectly, completely faithful to what scripture uh, has been promising. Because all of scripture has been pointing to this moment. This is the moment that, that Psalm 118 is being fulfilled. This is the moment that Zechariah 13 has been promising. The arrest, the, the striking of Jesus, the good shepherd. But this also leads to the scattering of the disciples. Because Jesus' prediction comes true. Mark tells us they all left him and fled. The shepherd has been struck and the sheep have been scattered. The disciples completely abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. And then Mark gives us in verses 51 and 52 a, a, an interesting note, you might call it, an interesting observation about a young man, a young man who was, who was on the scene wearing nothing, nothing but a linen cloth, this young man who's, who's seized by the mob and who flees away naked. And I, you see that and you think, what is, what is going on here? 
what's the deal with this weird little cameo in the middle of this, this heavy narrative, right? And, and you know, as I've, I've read and studied this, there, you know, different people throughout church history have tried to interpret who this young man is, who this guy is, who, who is poorly dressed, who runs away naked. You know, early Christian traditions uh, believe that this was Mark himself, uh, Mark himself inserting himself into the text, showing that he was a witness to these things because uh, he was living in Jerusalem and may have been familiar with Jesus and his disciples. But I think the main thing that we're meant to see in these two verses, in verses 51 and 52, is that we have this young man, a term which is often used in Scripture to refer to strength and vitality. We have this strong, vital young man who seems to have been eager to follow Jesus, you know, to the point where he just threw on a linen cloth and chased after the disciples. You have this strong and, and vital young man, and yet even he, even he flees, even he runs away, even he abandons Jesus, Right? The fact that the disciples have been following Jesus for three years, the fact that this young man is full of energy and strength, none of that is enough. They all fall away. They all completely abandon Jesus. That's what this passage has been building to. The narrative has been building to this moment where Jesus is completely abandoned. He's completely alone. But even in this moment, even in the midst, midst of this, Jesus remains completely faithful. He remains completely faithful. He perfectly submits to his Father's will. He allows himself to be arrested, to move towards the cross in fulfillment of Scripture. And it is only when we see his complete faithfulness here, his humility, his submission, it's only then that we truly can shake off spiritual slumber, that we can truly wake up and live out of what God has done for us in Christ, the man of sorrows, our perfect Savior. You see, there's no other story, no other religion, no other philosophy or worldview that's like this. There's no other religion that has a God who knows what it is to be abandoned, who knows what it is to experience suffering and distress. No other philosophy or worldview can claim that even in our dullness, even in our sin and our weakness, that God loves us so much, that God of the universe loves us so much, is filled with so much compassion for us that he sent his son to endure this kind of suffering for us. You can't find that anywhere else. And that's important because you may be here today struggling with spiritual slumber. You may, hear to be, you may be here today dulled and distracted by the pressing weight of sorrow or distress or temptation. You may be here today and you feel abandoned by God. You feel abandoned by other people. You may feel crushed by all your attempts at religious devotion, which have only left you uh, broken and empty and confused. But wherever you are this morning, whatever you're struggling with, look to the sun in the garden. See his perfect faithfulness. See his sorrow as he anticipates the cup of judgment. See how he perfectly submits to the will of his Father, how he is completely faithful to carry out this plan of salvation. See how he compassionately goes out to warn his disciples. See him and know that his heart of compassion beats for you as well, that he endured all that sorrow, he endured all that distress out of love for you to go and suffer in your place. 
look to him and shake off spiritual slumber as you see how he was completely faithful even as he was completely abandoned. How he bore the cup that we deserve to bring us a triumph, a restoration that we can never earn. To make us into a new people who call on the name of the Lord, who answers us, who answers us in Christ. See him this morning and wake up. Shake off your prideful protests. Find hope in the midst of your suffering, of your distress. And discover in Christ a new strength, a new power, a new freedom to submit to the will of God, even in the face of sorrow, even in the face of suffering. Because if you do so, when we look to Christ, when we call on His name, then we can truly, joyfully say the words of Psalm 118. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free, free. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, for your compassion. You've sent your son to carry out a plan to endure the the sorrow, the distress that we deserve. To refine, to redeem, to rescue and restore a, a new people for yourself, Lord. So we thank you that in Christ we can be a part of this people. We can have hope in the midst of suffering. We can have a security that's far greater than anything we can earn for ourselves. Lord, so humble us this morning as we look to Christ, as we see his perfect faithfulness. And wake us up. Lord, wake us up out of spiritual slumber. Wake us up out of pride and fear and temptation and sin. Help us to turn to Christ, find new life, new power, new hope in him. To do your will, to serve you. Even as we go through hardships and struggles and persecutions. Lord, strengthen us this morning. Open our eyes to see our perfect Savior to see the perfect work that he has done in us, the perfect salvation that we have in him. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and sing with us.
these words from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.